The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. I do hope, yeah, Revelation, as we've been delving into it, has been enjoyable and helpful. Um, it's an incredible book. And um, again, as Revelation 1 1 says, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? The unveiling. And so, what's the word revelation or <coughs> unveiling? What is it in the Greek there? Apocalypse. So, apocalypse is a good thing, it's not a bad thing. I can't help the fact that Hollywood has hijacked that word. That's not our fault. Uh, but it means what it means regardless of what it's been hijacked to mean. So apocalypse, uncover, unveil, make plain, that type of thing, right? The revelation. So even, you know, this morning when we're singing, you know, that song, Revelation song, and how that whole song is about the beauty of Jesus and the glory that we have in him and his people, that's like a, you know, a sung version of like the book. Like in other words, the we should see the book that way with that type of enjoyment. I, if I can say it that way, and that, you know, that type of blessing. Because he says in chapter one that blessed is the person who hears the words and keeps and heeds the words of this prophecy. Right. So, um, um, so, Revelation, a good book. Not a scary, cryptic, dark book, all right? And we've mentioned this, but uh, it's, it's very much so worth mentioning some of these things again and again. Um, the book of Revelation is by far the most Old Testament-y book in all the New Testament. I think there are somewhere over 400, 400 and something uh I guess you know quotations or whatever from Old Testament verses in the Book of Revelation, and that's I think that's a large reason we've we've not understood it in the modern church because we're not familiar enough with the Old Testament. So you read things like a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21, and we just take our modern Western mind and just make that mean whatever we kind of want it to mean. Well, that's an Old Testament thing. We take the temple, uh, uh, the, the you know all these the heavenly city and, and the the uh, all these things you know coming down and the you know and we just sort of apply bizarre thoughts and ideas like there's going to be a literal physical temple when Paul is tells us over and over you are the temple of God, the body of Christ is the the you know what I'm saying the new temple. And then all these different things, you know, uh, we've, we've missed some of these things because we've not been familiar enough with the Old Testament. Um, even in the Revelation song there, uh, or I think it was that song, there was something about a new song. Is that that, is that Revelation song? Yeah. That, that's from the, the Old Testament. That's when Moses leads the children of Israel up to the Promised Land, but and then, of course, he, he passes away, he dies. But as Joshua, which, of course, we see all the symbolism in that, don't we? You know, Moses represents the law, but the law can't lead us in, into the promised land, the promises of God, salvation, Sabbath rest. We find that in Jesus, or Yeshua. And what is Joshua? It's Yeshua, same name, right? And so only Yeshua can lead us into the promised land. But as they cross over the Jordan into the promised land, they were instructed to sing a new song. Well, that's in Revelation. Revelation quotes that. And so all of this old, and that's what Revelation is about, crossing out of the old covenant system into the post-temple, old creation, old heaven and earth system, promised land. All right? And, and let me just mention that again. The phrase heaven and earth is a Jewish idiom that represented the temple. All right? Even Josephus, if you've, even if you've never read it, how many of you have at least heard of Josephus? Way back. Uh, virtually every hand. Of course, he was a Jewish priest. He was living during the time of the Roman invasion, but he, he wasn't killed, but he was taken captive, as 
many, many, many thousands of Jewish people were, but he was made uh, uh, just like a scribe in terms of write everything down. So he was a, an eyewitness firsthand, you know what I'm saying? And so he, uh, but he tells us in his writings about the significance of heaven and earth and that his people in his day, the Jewish people, and he was a priest, uh, whenever they referred to heaven and earth, they were talking about the Jewish temple. And so Jesus uh, would say things like in Matthew 5 about uh, heaven and earth passing, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. Well, that was, he's talking about the temple. And that was astounding to tell those Jews that that glorious temple that they were beholding, that was just recently finished, uh, saying that this temple, by the way, it's going to pass away. And then you get to Matthew 23 and he tells the Pharisees, your house is being left, the temple is being left unto you desolate. A few verses later in Matthew 24, what's he say? Truly I tell you, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Truly I tell you, heaven and earth, the temple, will pass away. So you get into the book of Revelation, and you see this same phrase about a new heaven and a new earth. And he's quoting from Isaiah, and you got to go back to Isaiah 64, 64 to get the beginning part of it. But then chapter 65 and chapter 66, he describes the spiritual realities of the new heaven and the new earth, which we currently reside in. Hallelujah. And that's just a few examples of how powerful and profound the unveiling of Jesus is. Ah, and then you get to the seven churches, which we've been looking at the first uh, these last seven weeks here. And you can open to Revelation 3, by the way. But um, that's what he's helping the churches. And he's, he's Jesus in chapter 1. He unveils himself in all of his glory. You know, John you know, says he hears a voice as, as many waters behind him, and then he turns around, and he sees the unveiled, glorious Jesus. And he said, I fell as one who was dead. I love that. When he was, you know, knocked out in the power of God, whatever you want to call it, slain in the spirit, you know. Uh, and then Jesus, the, the part I, I like even more is Jesus touches him. He says, don't be afraid. I just love that. You know, that's, that's our Jesus. But he sees an unveiled Jesus in chapter 1, and then you get to the, the seven churches, and Jesus is helping them as they were under severe, uh, mostly, persecution from the Jews and the Romans. And of course, you see in the book of Acts, you see at the very beginning of the book how the Jews were coming against the, the believers, the Christians, very strongly. And then you see, uh, particularly in Paul's life, how the Romans came against him, and all these types of things. And we see, again, Jesus helping the churches in their situations, all right? And he uses some of their natural things there to uh, relate to them. And uh, we'll see more of that today as we finish up here. But he's helping all of these churches to repent, rethink, change their mind, to help them to hold on to the truth of the new covenant system and to not yield to Roman pressure, uh, Caesar worship type of... Uh, I don't even know what to liken it up to. It would almost like if, if you know, this room was, you know, a spaceship and we all just right now picked up and, you know, we got dropped off in Iran or something. I mean, the persecution, the, the pressure to denounce this uh, Yeshua that you claim is the Messiah, you know, not only from the Jewish people, but then the, Ro the Romans who have all of their, uh, their pagan gods, Zeus and all the Greek, uh, mythology and the whole the whole slew uh, of them, you know that. So and and of course it's also interesting because this and I mentioned this and some of this is review and some of this is a little tidbits to throw out there. Is the Caesars were con were literally considered divine beings, and so the Caesars were considered gods made flesh. <coughs> all right. So it was very, uh, to say Jesus is Lord was a very strong statement because to say Jesus is Lord was saying Caesar is not Lord. Right. And the Caesars, because they became flesh, were literally, and you had one Caesar at a time, but the Caesar was called the Son of God. And you see all the cultural ramifications of this, right? And so to say, no, Jesus is Lord, and he's the true Son of the only true God. These were big deals, all right? And so you might as well go to Iran and say, Attention! Allah is a false god! Jesus is Lord! That's, that was the equivalent of what they you know, were dealing with. 
So, anyways, hallelujah. Now, how's that for an introduction? Good deal. Revelation 3. And I know you, some of you are, are saying, Jordan, the, the seven churches, that, that's good, and I get it, and I, you know, uh, when am I going to get to the more fun stuff? I get that, um, but I think it's significant to cover the seven churches, because I'm 33, and uh, I've never heard anyone preach in church on the seven churches. It's as if they don't even matter. But the letter was written to them. Hello. <laughs> and so we need to understand some of these things. And... Uh, and a lot of people, even people who love grace-based, New Covenant stuff, they're even scared of Revelation, and they're scared of the seven churches, and they don't understand it. Well, we need to understand it, and these things are very helpful. All right, now, Revelation chapter 3. Oh, let me see here. That is not what I need. I on now? Okay. First one. He says, write uh, the following to, uh, no, I don't want to read that. I'm sorry. That's, uh, does anyone use the Passion Translation? Yeah. Sometimes. Wrong with us. It's pretty good. It's very good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I had this still. I'm going to do that right now. All right, verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, of course, the angel, the word angel means messenger. So, to the, mess, uh, to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write. And he says, uh, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this he says I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead now verse 2 here he says wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, a couple of things here. The word Sardis is, uh, of course, you know, I've, I've been giving you the names, the meaning of all the names, but the word Sardis uh, can carry two distinct, equally valid, equally applicable meanings. And it just depends on, like, we have, you know, in America, all of our words have, you know, it's like 10 different meanings, you know. Cool. Oh, it's cool. Is it cold coal or is it awesome hip coal? Whatever. Fat. <coughs> Fat used to mean cool. Anyone remember that? Yeah. I do, right? Some of you do. Okay. Man, she's fat. <laughs> you better watch what you say. No, oh, I'm in a good way. You know, so it's, words can carry these different meanings. Now, uh, Sardis can literally mean red ones, interestingly. Red ones uh, can also mean the remains, the remains, or you can say it another way, uh, the escaped ones. So I think the remains is kind of a better way to understand it. So it can carry each one of those connotations there. Uh, Sardis, very interesting here, uh, was a very wealthy city and uh, it was populated with many uh, very wealthy you know, nobility, very uh, esteemed nobles, an extremely wealthy city. Uh, I must do this. Uh, can't give every detail. But let, let me just share this with you. This is interesting. Uh, I know all of you have remembered uh, verbatim the book of Obadiah. Um, <laughs> what's that? Forward and back. Yeah, yeah. No. You've got every verse underlined, not just. So, uh, nonetheless, um, 
The book of Obadiah actually references, it's one chapter, verses 20 and 21, actually references uh, prophetically how the Jewish uh, a part, a remnant, uh, you might say the remaining ones, a certain part of the group of Jewish people, thousands of Jews were brought in to the area of Sardis, all right? Um, and you'll see some of this as we go on through here. It's a very interesting little point here. And as a matter of fact, Esther, uh, whenever Esther and Mordecai, you know, withstood and God graced her against Haman's attack to kill all the Jews and all of that, uh, the Jews who eventually were transported and influxed and brought into what became Sardis, they were actually protected and preserved and kept alive through what Esther brought out, what Esther did to protect the Jewish people. So that's part of the Jews that were in Sardis. That's part of their legacy. They get brought to what became known as Sardis. They get brought there. And then, during the time of Esther, they'd all be wiped out, but they're protected through what she did for the people of God at that time. So you see some of the connection and some of the history there. Now, verse 2 uh, I don't know what your translation says. The American Standard says, wake up. Does anyone say, does anyone's translation say anything about watch? Yes. You're, I see multiple hands. That is the better Greek translation. I'm not sure. Wake up is okay, but it's better to say to watch or to become watchful. All right? That is emphatically the better Greek translation on that. So become watchful, now notice this, and strengthen the things that remain. And the word sardis means, or at least can mean, the remains. So Jesus, it's almost like a play on words here. And, and again, that gives more credence to how he's relating to each and every one of these congregations right where they're at. And I'm so thankful God meets us right where we are. Amen. I'm so glad God can speak Jordanese. You know, a lot of people, when they start out in the things of God, God, they hear God talk to them in King James. Because they wouldn't know if it was God. And, you know, thus saith me. You know, like, like you know what I'm saying? People, they just, but, but as you progress, you get to hear God on your own level. And, you know, and I, go, I get in seasons where I have what I call a sweet spot. You know, and uh, for several years, I would always hear the Lord the best, I don't know why, in the shower. I go take a shower, and I would just get the Bible. I don't know why, you know. And then that sort of transition, and I got to where I would hear the Lord uh, when I was mowing. There you go. You know, yeah, you know. Uh, my mentor, Norval Hayes, says, great revelation comes in hot tubs. So, you know, that's, that was his, huh? A long time. Yes, yes. And so uh, God can speak our language. And, you know, that's in Revelation 1, that's what John said. He said, I heard the voice of like many running living waters. And you know, you hear God, I've heard God speak to me and it sounded like an explosion going off on the inside of me. You know, and sometimes I've heard him whisper. And sometimes it's like the wind. I heard the voice, you know, and Job had that. Job heard the voice of the Lord in the wind. It's just, he speaks to me in a dream. You know what I'm saying? He just, he knows how to get across to us, man. Ah, I love it. You know, so a lot of times I see words written over people's heads. I mean, God will just, he knows how to speak your language, man. And that's a beautiful thing. So he tells them here, he says, become watchful and strengthen that which remains. The things which were about to die, for I have uh, not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Verse 3, he said, says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent, metanoia, rethink. Therefore, if you don't become watchful, now this is very important. Notice what he says. If you do not become watchful, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come. Now the book of Revelation is all about Jesus trying to help these churches in the midst of the persecution that they were getting from the Jews and from Rome, particularly from the sick, twisted, vile, nasty, deceited, uh, deceived, demented, freak, Nero. You've all heard of Nero, correct? 
vile and severe persecution came from him during this time. Uh, if you have most of your Bibles, if you have commentary um, about at the beginning of it, about when the book of Revelation was written, sadly today, most modern Western churches will, uh, and thus commentaries will say it was written around 95, 96 AD. That is completely incorrect. There's no historical validity to that whatsoever. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Passion Translation is the only one that I have found, and if you and don't have it there, but I could turn there, and it says date of when it was written, and it says 66 to 68 AD or 96 AD. But all the evidence, and I studied it at length, shows that it was written uh, right around 68 AD when John was exiled by Nero to the Isle of Patmos. And Nero died in 68 AD. And as Nero's the one who banished him in his lifetime, and had years before, 70 AD, destruction. So that, and of course, that's what it's dealing with. Um, <clears throat> let me see if I have this here um, very quickly. Turn to Matthew. Uh, well, notice again, notice here where he says, come like a thief, become watchful, therefore wake up, and it's better to say watchful. I come like a thief. Uh, Matthew 24, and I, you don't have to turn there, but I'll put it up here for you, but you can if you want. Uh, I'll just uh, show you a connection to that. Um, let me get that. Several places in the New Testament speak of the Lord's coming like a thief, and it always refers to his coming in 70 AD. The Greek word for the coming of the Lord that's used in the New Testament, this is this is worth noting, is the Greek word parousia, and it's transliterated as P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, the coming or the parousia of the Lord. The word parousia literally means presence, and that's what the Jew, that's what the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 24. When will these things happen? What things? The sign of your presence. The sign. They needed signs because it wasn't a literal, visible, physical coming. So they needed signs for that coming or that presence or that parousia. And the end of the age, the, the Mosaic Old Covenant age. And I should probably do the math sometime this week now. Matthew 24. And of course I have this up here. Uh, Says he sat on the Mount of Olives. By the way, this is when the prophecy in Zechariah about the Lord descending and standing on the Mount of Olives and it being split into, this is when that was fulfilled. This is the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives and splitting it down the middle. Old covenant, new covenant. Right here. This is when that was fulfilled, the Olivet Discourse. All right, now, so he says here, verse 3, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us when will these things be? What things? The sign of your parousia, your coming, and the end of, sadly, the King James says world, uh, but virtually every single other translation translates it properly. It's age. All right? The sign of your coming and the end of the age. Nonetheless, Jesus, as we read a moment ago, told the church, in Sardis, become watchful. <clears throat> said, I am coming. And they knew this. They, they heard the gospel. They knew the coming of the Lord, the Perusia, the end of the age coming was at hand. All the first century Christians, of course, knew this. Now notice this. Of course, what was the what was the disciples' question? When will these things be? What things? Sign of your Perusia, the end of the age. And what's he telling them in verse 34? Truly I tell you, this generation. This generation, the one he's talking to, in other words, will not pass away until all, somebody say all, all, not some, not half, not a few verses, all of these things be fulfilled. Next verse, heaven and earth, talking about the Jewish temple, as we already discussed a few moments ago, will pass away, but my words will not. Now, look at verse 37. <clears throat> But as the days of Noah were, so also shall, still answering your question, the parousia, 
the presence, the coming of the Lord, of the Son of Man be. Now notice this. For as in the days uh, that were before the flood, they were, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until, until the very day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came. Now notice this. And knew not until the flood came and took them away. Who did the flood take away? The wicked. The unbelieving. Who was kept on the earth? The righteous. And many scriptures speak of the righteous inheriting the earth. And yet people try to use these verses to say, we're going to be out of here and they're going to keep the earth. Of course, it's not in our future, and it's literally the exact, am I getting anywhere? Yes. The exact opposite. He says, as it was in the day of Noah. Who was taken away in the days of Noah? The wicked. Now, then he says, uh, two will be in the field. The one will be taken, and the other left. And of course, he's talking about how the Romans would come in. You know, they would kill one of the people, and then they would take another one and throw them into custody and imprisonment and slavery and all of that. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. What's he say here? Watch therefore. Watch therefore. Now this is exactly what he tells the church in Sardis. Become watchful. Alright? So become watchful for you do not know at what hour uh, reward will come. <clears throat> now look here at verse 48. Boy, this is interesting. Please, if you, if you get anything today, Try to get this, all right? But, and if, the evil servant. Don't you hate it when preachers do this? Somebody say, evil servant. <laughs> Matthew 24, please pay attention if you can. Verse 48. The evil servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. And the church has been, at least for the last 200 years, has been saying, oh, the coming of the Lord was delayed. Yeah. It's been delayed. It's been delayed. All the signs are here, but it's been delayed. No, we're putting this somewhere where it doesn't belong. Jesus rebukes this delay mentality. He said, the evil servant says, the Lord delays his coming. All right? Now, and then he goes on, uh, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him. Now, and then, that's verse 50. Uh, will come in a day when he looketh not for him in an hour that he is not aware of. Uh, and we looked at this last week, but let me show it to you again. In Hebrews chapter 10, I have it up here behind me, I think. Yes? No? Okay. Hebrews 10, very quickly, verse 37, he says, For yet in a very little while, and in the Greek that's very strong, it, it's could be, and maybe some translations do say, it, it should say, a very, very little while. Book of Hebrews was written 65 to 67 AD, right before the destruction, uh, the invasion and then destruction. In a very, very short or little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Will not delay. Jesus said, the evil servant says, my Lord delays his coming. Author of Hebrews says, we're right on the brink of this thing. He is coming, and he will not delay. And he's actually quoting here from the book of Habakkuk. But nonetheless, back to Revelation. Hallelujah. This is good news, because this means all that stuff that some people have been telling you is in your future is in your past. Amen. I am so thankful I don't have seven years of hell on earth to look forward to. And I'm sorry to rob you of that fear and torment, but please forgive me. You know? It could just be that the scriptures, and before they were scripted, but the words that were spoken when Jesus is looking at people and says, this generation, it could just mean that he meant this generation. Absolutely. And not this generation. I mean, maybe when he was talking to people, he wasn't being deceitful. Maybe he meant what he said. Possible. Now, <laughs> that doesn't fit my doctrine, Jordan. I know. I can't help it. It doesn't fit mine either. What am I going to do? 
So he says here, Revelation 3, 3, Therefore, you don't become watchful. I'm going to come like a thief. And then there's different scriptures, 1 Thessalonians 5 and other places, the coming of the Lord like a thief in the night. He said, you will not know what hour I come. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now that's interesting because, again, Sardis can mean the remains, and he already said, strengthen that which remains. And then here, again, it can also mean red ones, and he talks about them wearing white, which speaks of them walking in their righteousness. Of course, they all had faith in Jesus, were righteous, but uh, what does, you know, Ephesians talks about uh, putting on the Lord, putting on these things that are ours, you know, the things we freely receive. First uh, Corinthians uh, talks about awake to righteousness. You know, and so he's, he's exhorting them to come watchful. The hour's at hand. Walk in the truth that's been given to you. So, uh, and he says, and they'll walk with me in white. They're worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Now, this is really interesting. Pay attention to this. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I have never, except for me, I have literally never heard anyone preach on these verses about not erasing their names that they don't actually preach what it says. I will not erase their names. All I ever hear is, see there, it says he, he'll, he'll erase your name. I will not erase his name. See there, if you don't overcome, he's gonna erase your name. I will not erase their name. That's interesting. Now, from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, very interesting was in, in Sardis, uh, one of the practices of that area, again, Jesus speaking their language, right, where they were at, uh, one of the local customs that they had was when someone was, all the males had to register and be, and be kept in a, a registry and census and that type of thing. When you committed a crime that was punishable by death, they would blot your name out of the local registry. And, and maybe you've seen some of these movies, or uh, I almost, I have one on the forefront of my brain and I can't quite access the file. Um, so maybe somebody will think of it as I'm talking. Um, it's like one of these movies, this isn't what I was, but like the Step for Wives. You know, it's this, this sort of paradise, this incredible, you know, community, and it's just, perfect and all this type of stuff. Um, but they would say, well, we don't have any crime in this area. And, you know, let me use, this might be a better example. Uh, there have been presidents in American history who have changed laws so that they can change the statistics and then give them to their constituencies. Oh no, we're not doing that because they changed the law. And so technically they can say, Oh, we're not doing such and such. Oh, it's just been renamed or rebranded, something like that. So in Sardis, that was sort of, oh, no, we don't have any crime. Here's all of our citizens. Yeah. And so they would blot your name out when you committed a crime before they carry out your execution. And so Jesus is saying, unlike these guys, I won't blot your name out. Mm -hmm. he's, he's affirming them. He's strengthening them. See, when Jesus comes and brings correction, Jesus' correction, it's, it's life prescriptions. It, it's not, don't drink, cuss you, and go with girls who do it because I hate you, and I'll smite you, and I'll blot your name out. It's not, look, I love you, but that'll kill you. That'll ruin your family. That'll ruin, you know, it, it's hurting you. And so Jesus' commands and teachings and instructions for us are always life prescriptions to help us and elevate us to live life at the most optimal level possible. Amen. Because he's the author of life and therefore knows the optimal way to live. You know what I'm saying? So that's what he's telling them here. And then, he, you know, closing out here, he has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He's moving on quickly. Verse 7, and to the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, right? And I'm sure I don't have to tell you what Philadelphia means. Brotherly love. That's right. Uh, and it was actually named after uh, the king who uh, established this area 
It was named after his brother. And I forget his full name. It was something or other, Philadelphus. And so it was named after the king's brother, Philadelphia. Brotherly, in other words, love. So he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David. Oh, I just love that. Uh, there's only one other place in scripture that references the key of David. And I'm not going to turn there, but it's in Isaiah. All right, all right, and you can look that up later, chapter 22. But the name David literally means beloved, all right? David means beloved. Who has the key of David, now notice this, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open, says this. And I, th I think there's many ways to that we can sort of look at that. Um, we do know for sure, again, as with all the seven churches, they were enduring uh, severe persecution. And at Philadelphia, the, the Jewish persecution in particular was very strong in this area. Some areas, the Roman persecution was worse. Here, it seems the Jewish persecution uh, was worse. And we've even, there's even been things found and uncovered uh, in archaeological things uh, to help verify some of these things. But, you know, they were being uh, denied entrance into synagogues and this type of thing. And so Jesus is saying, look, I can open a door for you to share, to share the gospel that no man can show. But I think in, in another dynamic, a, a greater picture, what I think is Jesus is, at least possibly, but maybe probably communicating here, is he's saying the key of David. Now Jesus is the son of David that goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the great messianic prophecy that the seed of David will sit on an everlasting throne of an everlasting kingdom, which is why in the gospel some people would say, Jesus, you son of David. They were, that was a messianic term. To say that was to say, I, I, I believe in who you are. I know you're the Messiah, right? And so, shut, that you know, open, don't shut, shut, don't open, open. I think he's saying, I'm establishing my kingdom, and... I'm shutting the door once and for all on the old covenant system. And nobody's going to reopen this door. And I'm opening the door to the new covenant system. And the Jews or the Romans that are persecuting you cannot stop and stomp out this new covenant kingdom. Hallelujah. All right? Because it would have looked like a pretty meager, uh, impossible, I'm at mission impossible, right? Uh, this would have looked a pretty dire situation. They're living in the Roman Empire. Rome has conquered the known civilized world. And if that's not bad enough, the, the, uh, the Jews, they're persecuting you as well because of think of how many of the first century church believers were Jewish and came out of Judaism. So they, you know, they just can't win for losing, it seems. And Jesus is saying, regardless of what it looks like, look unto me. I'm shutting the door on this system. Just stand firm in me. You will overcome in me. All right, so this is what he's communicating to them. Um, verse 8 here. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now notice this. Because you have little power and still yet have kept my word. Just a little power is enough to hold on to his word. You know what I'm saying? Right. What if we have a revelation of the greater power that's in us? Yeah. And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. He actually uses that phrase to one of the other churches we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This is the Jews who are persecuting the believers. Who say, look at what Jesus says, who say that they are Jews and are not. What does Romans chapter 2 say? Very clearly. Paul says, who is a true Jew? The one who's circumcised and boasts in the law outwardly, or he who has been circumcised inwardly in the heart? The new covenant believer, whose old stony heart's been cut away and has received the law of the spirit of life. The new covenant, the new heart. Amen? Amen. And so, uh, who's the true Jew or the true covenant person of God? The new covenant community. 
regardless of race, nationality, or ethnicity. Amen? Amen. Thank God Jesus is not racist. The gospel is for all. <clears throat> Hallelujah. He had to teach Peter that, man. Peter was a Zionist bigot, you know? Peter just thought this gospel, even years after the, the day of Pentecost, all the way over in Acts chapter 10, several years have gone by, Peter still thinks that this messianic good news is only for the Jewish people. And I mean, Jesus has to give them a vision. I mean, it's just pour out the Holy Spirit and, and Gentiles speaking in tongues and praising God in front of him. They couldn't deny it. You know, I mean, God just had to do all kinds of stuff to get old stubborn Pete's attention there. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I mean, I'm going to make, you know, we would be like, I'm going to uh, make them bow down at your feet and then off with their head. You know, I don't know. I'm just, but he says, I'm going to make them bow down. In other words, they're going to have to come face to face with this. They're not going to be able to deny this anymore. Not going to be able to deny what, Jesus? I'm going to show my glory and my power. How, Jesus? By revealing my love. And of course, this is to Philadelphia, brotherly love. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, says that Jesus partook of or became flesh and blood just like us and is therefore not ashamed to call us brethren. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus is going to reveal his power. And I think this is important for us to remember, that those who set themselves up as our enemies, as in that's their posture towards us, you know what I'm saying? enemies of the gospel, it's always important to remember that they're still loved by God. Because Paul is very clear in Romans 5 that in a certain sense we were all the enemies of God. Because we were lost and without hope. You know, But that he came in due time Romans chapter 5 and died for the ungodly and newsflash, that's all of us. Right? And then Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, reference it all the time, be like your father, love your enemies, because he is kind and merciful to the evil and the unthankful. So Abba is very kind and tender to the enemies of the gospel. That's beautiful. Amen. He said, you've kept the word of my perseverance, and I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Pay close, close attention to this, please. We talked about this the first and second week. Here is a prime, great example of this. The book of Revelation uses the words world and earth, and I forget the number, but it's over 70 times. It might be 81, somewhere there, I, I forget. But, you know, we talked about it at length. Only three times, and, and we looked at all three of those verses, is the, is the words world and earth in Revelation only three times of the 70 or 80 times in the Greek is it actually the Greek word cosmos, which refers to the whole world. Every other time, it's cos that's cosmos. So like the land slain before the foundation of the world, that's cosmos. Uh, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. That's cosmos. And I forget offhand what the other example was. Every other time, it's the Greek word oikomene, which even now in grocery stores, I saw it the other day, just a few days ago. Oikos, Greek yogurt. So, you know, it's from that, oikomene. It always, it's the Roman Empire. So like in Luke, whenever it says that Caesar taxed the whole earth, but he didn't tax the aboriginals in Australia, people. He taxed the whole Roman world, the whole non-conquered, civilized Roman world. The other word is the Greek word gay, G-E, and it always refers to the land of Judea or the land of Israel. All right, now pay attention to this. I will keep you from the hour of testing. The hour which is about to come on the whole oikomene, the whole Roman world, to test those who dwell on the gay, the land of Israel. Because as Rome went to it's, I think it's important to understand this. As they went to Jerusalem, they were still 
on the way there, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, the seven churches, they're listed in the order that you would get there. Like if you're on a map and you say, let's get in the car, Dan and Adrian, they take vacation about once a month, and you know, and they, if they were in Rome, I just, I'm not jealous. So, <laughs> You know, but you know, they that's the direction, the direction of the churches from chapter two, they're listed in geographical order. The Roman road, it was called, as you would travel if you were going you know, to visit all of them. On the way there, they're still persecuting and killing Jews and Christians on the way. And then they finally set up shop and do the most damage in Jerusalem. All right? Now, and so Jesus, that's why he's telling them, become watchful. All right, and so he's letting them go so they can escape the hour of testing, that which is coming. They didn't have to die if they believed the Messiah and followed his warnings that he gave in Matthew 24. Now, he says again, the hour which is about to come upon the whole Oikomene, the whole Roman world, to test those who dwell on the day, the earth, or the land of Israel. Verse 11, behold, same thing he says in chapter 1, same thing he says in the last chapter, 22. I am coming quickly. So hold fast to that which you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I love this, whew, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go in and out from it anymore. See, in the new covenant, we, the body of Christ, and we've talked about this, we are the temple, right? Yes. And that's what Ezekiel's prophecy was about. You know, you know what Ezekiel, and he says, son of man, can these bones live? And he said, I don't know. He says, prophesy to these bones. Tell them to live. And he saw the flesh come on and develop on them in the resurrection. That, that was a prophetic image of the old covenant body dying, but resurrecting as the new covenant body. The body died, the body resurrected. Old covenant died, new covenant resurrected. So now, unlike the Jews throughout the, the centuries past and in the first century, we don't go in and out of the temple. We are the temple. Amen. And Jesus said in John 14, I will send you the comforter who will remain or abide with you forever. Hallelujah. So we don't walk in and out of this thing, man. God's in us. And that's, a, that's multiple places in the New Testament from an Old Testament prophecy. Mention that as well. God says, I will walk in now. So if God gives, you know, I'll be there, God, they'll be my people. You know, but, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, other places mention that. So if God gives his address, he shows your picture, right? We are where God lives. We're the temple of God. We're the people of God. We're the city of God, all right? And that's a beautiful reality. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go in and out from it anymore. And I will write uh, on him the name of my God. Now, no, don't miss this either. I will write on him the name of my God. Now, it's only the mark of the beast that people lose their mind over. But whenever you get to where God puts his seal on, on the... It says, you know, 12,000 from each tribe. That was just representing the fact that there was a remnant from all the Jewish people in the first century. He says he'll, he's going to put his seal, Revelation 7, on their heads, the believing Jews. Nobody tries to, oh, what's that? We just lose our mind over the mark. But we ignore all the other seals and all the other names. Right? Here's an example of it. Nobody freaks, oh, what's that going to look like? You know, I will write my name, uh, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Why is he writing these, these names on us? Because we are these things. We are the temple of God. Amen. We are the heavenly city. You understand? The new, the new Jerusalem is not a place. It's a people. All right? And so we are, we can, the body of Christ makes up the temple. Hallelujah. And it's also interesting because Philadelphia was uh, plagued very significantly with earthquakes all throughout its history. And of course, in the first century, we know there was an increase in earthquakes. That was one of the signs Jesus told them to watch out for. Philadelphia was ravaged and plagued, uh, plagued by earthquakes, and so was Laodicea. 
All right, I'm going to finish up. Give me five minutes here, and we'll be finished. Laodicea, and I just want to do this so we can get on to the other stuff. I just want to finish this up here. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, uh, verse, what is that, 14, right. The amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning or the origin or the source of the creation of God says this. Now, the word Laodicea, uh, it depends on how you want to say it, but it can basically translate the justice of the people, the justice of the people. Um, you could even, it depends on how you use it, but you could accurately even translate it like a self-righteousness, a self-righteous people, the justice of the people. The people are righteous, self-righteous. And boy, do you see that in uh, this letter here. The Amen. Now this is interesting. <clears throat> Those of you who have read in Deuteronomy, um, when you get to like chapters 27, 28, 29, and this was a very customary, common practice in that day when covenants were brought about, executed, uh, but you would declare the covenant blessings, and then you would declare the covenant curses, if you broke the covenant. And you see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I call heaven and earth to record against you today. And then the first 14 verses, he goes through the covenantal blessings if Israel keeps their end of the covenant. Then all the way to like verse 64 or somewhere in there, there's many, many more verses on the covenant curses. And it's very interesting in Deuteronomy, whenever he calls the covenant blessings, they never say amen. But when he finishes reading the covenant curses, the people say amen. And amen is a very strong word. That means, so be it unto me. So be it unto me. God's a good God. Amen. There you go. Eight, somebody said amen. So somebody, and then I heard Jason and maybe others said, so that's what you're saying. So be it unto me. God's going to get you. <laughs> God is your healer. Amen. There you go. That's, you know, it's cut, and that's why 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20 speaks of uh, in him are all, you know, all the blessings, and then we say amen to the glory of God. So, uh, anyways, we need to move on here. He says, I, now this is interesting, for the law, we have all been harassed by terrorist pulpit preachers from these verses here, uh, but we'll just clear this up. Once again, legalism has hijacked the mess out of these, and it's uh, sad. We'll deal with it and be finished. He says, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. Did you get what I was saying about the amen? Uh, all the covenant curses were coming down in finality on the, all the Jews who rejected their Messiah at this age. And that's what the Roman, God didn't want that for them. But that was, the, the old covenant system was a sinking ship. And all the covenant curses were coming down in that era on those people. And then Jesus was the amen of the blessings because we've been blessed with all blessings in Christ. And he's our amen. He's my right to these promises and blessings of God. Yeah, got that right. He says this, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you're lukewarm, Either hot or cold, I'll spew or spit uh, you out of my mouth. Now, Laodicea, um, of course, Book of Colossians, you've heard of Colossae, and you've probably also read or ever heard of Aeropolis. Laodicea was between Colossae, it was five miles from Colossae, it was 11 miles from Aeropolis, all right? Laodicea did not have their own water source. So they had to create aqueducts mm -hmm. from Colossae and from uh, Aeropolis to get their own water supplies. Now, Laodicea was known uh, basically for, for three different things. Uh, let me make sure. Let me make sure I get this right. We're going to put that. 
bear with me. I'm trying to finish with this manuscript on this one YouTube video. Oh, there it is. Okay, I want to make sure I have all three of them. And you'll see this as it comes out in the in the letter here to them. Uh, they were known for their lukewarm water. They were also known for a uh, the shepherds in that region, if you want to say created, but uh, through breeding, a particular type of sheep in which there was a significant and uh, hot item, popular, much desired, whatever you want to call it, black wool. And they were also known for a medicinal eye salve that they made. Uh, an eye ointment dedication that they made there, all right? As a matter of fact, there was a medical school in Laodicea, and it was a school that specialized, what's it called, ophthalmology, how do you say it? Mm -hmm. That, uh, yeah. So that's, uh, all of that, of course, you see that here. Now, they got their cold water from Colossae. But again, that's a five-mile journey, all right? And so by the time it gets there, it's not cold and crisp and cool and refreshing like it once was, all right, at its origin, at its source. And then they got their warm, or it would have been hot, water from Aeropolis. And a little tidbit about Aeropolis, uh, they had, and I actually have a picture. Would you go back to the Mac? I don't think I can do it for this. Um, but you know what? Don't worry. Let me do it. Camera people, stay put, you know. Let me just show you. I have actually uh, put a picture of this in here. This is from modern day Aeropolis. And Aeropolis is where they got their hot water, and they were renowned for. Let me see if you can see it. There you go. And I know that's blurry, and let me see if I can all of that. But if you can make that out, and I'm sorry it's not there, uh, it almost looks like a snow covered, mm -hmm. but it's not. Um, can you make out the blue water parts? Oh, yeah. And then the rest of it, that's the, the minerals from these hot springs. And you can just Google modern day Aeropolis springs and then click on images. I know that's not very good. But, um, but anyways, so people would go to uh, Laodicea for their eye salve and this type of thing. You know, you could get cold, crisp, refreshing water in Colossae. But people would come with joint and bone problems and with skin issues. They would go to Aeropolis to bathe in these hot, mineral-rich springs. So they would try to get their hot water from here, but they had the same problem as the cold water from Colossi. Which, I guess that's a good way to remember. Colossi, cold, C, Aeropolis, H, hot. Movement association. That'll help you remember it. Uh, but by the time it got there, they couldn't do much of it, you know, they, they made the best of it, but by the time they got this cold water, this once cold water and once hot mineral rich water, it was lukewarm and it smelled kind of putrid and terrible, especially the mineral water because of what the minerals did, all, all of that, yeah. And so uh, it kind of tasted bad and you had limited uses of what you could do uh, with this water, especially the hot mineral water. So, of course, this makes perfect sense to them. Jesus says, there's a lukewarmness, and it doesn't taste good. And of course, Jesus exhorted us, be salt and light. There's rivers of living water within you to flow through you, to, to offer people the refreshing, life-giving, uh, however you want to say it, flowing waters of the gospel. Amen? Our gospel should taste good. It shouldn't leave a bitter taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Amen. Let your light shine before you so that people may see your good works. Not your self-righteous, religious, pointing your finger at, condemning everybody works. Not your legalistic, pharisaical, self-righteous works. Good works. Amen. Jesus went about doing good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's our message to the world. And it should taste good in people's mouths. He said, but, you know, just like the waters that you guys have there, neither cold nor hot, I wish you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. Uh, it doesn't taste good. I'm going to have to spit it out. Because you say, I'm rich, and I become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And it was a very uh, wealthy area. He said, you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, self Righteousness. Self, and, and this is uh, 
Of course, most of us were systematically trained into self-righteousness. We've been systematically taught that you have to be right with God through your works. And Jesus is having to correct and help them. I mean, most of Paul's letters deal with this legalism that, you know, the Jews were putting on them and this mixing of law and grace. And he says, you don't even know. You're too blind to this, which was interesting because of the, the medicinal eye ointment that they had. So he uses that to relate to them. But you're blind. And that's what, self, that's what legalism does to people, man. It, it, it goes one of two ways. It either crushes you and, and you just give up in despair. And that's where I pretty much was when I had enough of legalism. Or some people are actually deceived enough and self-righteous enough, they actually think that somehow they're good enough in their works, in their Christian performance, to somehow be right with God. Through their, every now and then you'll run into that. And it does not taste good. You know? So, at all. Um, and so he's trying to help them and pull them out of this year. So he says, I advise you to buy gold from me. Alright? Refined by fire so that you may become rich. And Jesus in the Gospels talks about true riches. Remember what Jesus talked about? If you're faithful with a little, he'll make you faithful with much. The true riches, which is people. Eternal things. Not the temporary riches of this world. You have nothing wrong with having beans and blessing and not, nothing at all wrong with that. As the old adage goes, just don't let it have you, right? And so, yeah. So he says, so that you would wear white garments and clothe, then you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Take off your self-righteous robes like the older son, and let the father dress you in his robes of the gift of righteousness. Because we think our self-righteous robe is white and clean, but it's actually spotted and dirty. We're just too blind to see it. But the robe that he puts on us, the, the, the gift of righteousness is pure white. Amen? Amen. So he says, uh, you may clothe yourself. The shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And then I saw to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And what's he say? Just love this here. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's giving them life prescriptions to help them. It's absolutely beautiful. Therefore, uh, be zealous and metanoia. Change your mind. Rethink. Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, sorry, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And you actually get a lot of, you get a really varied opinions on what people think this means. Uh, some people say, you know, they were legitimately born again, but they have basically become so self-righteous that they didn't, in one sense, they were so self-righteous, they didn't even need Jesus. They had this thing, the Galatians syndrome, start the spirit of grace, end in the works of the flesh of the law, you know, that type of thing. Some people, and I, and I just heard recently someone say that a very renowned uh, esteemed man of God say uh, that this particular part of it, at least, they probably weren't even born again at all. And how many of you know that there are droves of people that attend some type of religious church setting, but they there's never been a legitimate faith experience? Mm -hmm. That can happen, can it? Mm -hmm. So I won't speculate as to exactly, I, I just know that whatever it means, I like to dine with him. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Anyways. If people want to use it as a gospel invitation, great. If we need to use it to sort of help ourselves get back to a right frame of mind, great. You know, whatever. Either way. Uh, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my thrones. Also, I overcame and sat down. So our overcoming is in his overcoming. All right? If my father on his throne, he has an ear. Uh, let him hear what the Spirit says through the churches. Hallelujah. Um, it's very interesting, and I'm, I'm really I'm wrapping this up right here. That Jesus tells them, "I'm knocking at the door." You know, open up. But then you get to Revelation chapter four, which we'll look at this next week. I just put it up here behind me. What's he say? Behold, I saw a door standing open in heaven. See, from God's perspective, what did Jesus say? I am the door. Mm -hmm. So you know, sometimes you're talking about an open heaven. 
as new covenant people, we're under an open heaven, if you want to say it that way, all the time. Because we're seated in heavenly places. Heaven is in us. Can't get much more of an open heaven than that. Can you dig it? So from God's from their perspective, they, they needed to open the door back up here, you know, let God in, if you will. But from God's perspective, the door is open. Come one, come all. Matter of fact, Revelation 22, he says, the spirit and the bride, that's us, tell the world, come on in. You know, and so anyways, okay. Well, I hope that helps. And I know um, there's so many details and tidbits and that type of thing with the individual little uh, facts and historical things. But hopefully that helps you with the seven churches. And um, don't have to be afraid of reading seven churches, just like we don't have to be afraid of the whole book of Revelation. And then we'll get into some of the things uh, coming up there. And it won't be as verse by verse as some of these things have, but kind of hard to, to not do that with the churches. But um, anyways, some things you guys uh, asked me about and I know I've been excited about. But hopefully just the churches alone really gives us a greater apocalypse, a greater unveiling of Jesus. And, see some light in these things. Amen. Thank you. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.